We who have understood what it is to repent of sin and to follow after Christ, we are, there you have it. It is the we. We're no longer part of the they. The wonderful thing is that we can see the they turn to the we. That's the simple thing. So when the writer of Hebrews says, we have an altar, I want to go back just for your Sunday school memory a little bit, and we'll go back and just think together about when Israel come up out of Egypt, and they cross the Red Sea, and now they're in the desert. And where are they? They're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God comes down. And God speaks to the people of Israel, and now Moses is going to go and hear what God says and translate that for them. And you remember all of the laws that God gives. But among other things, God says, I want you to build me a tabernacle, a place that can be moved because you're going to be a moving people. Because this world is not your home, even though you have a promised land. And so it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews does not refer, even when this is written, the temple in Jerusalem is just being finished. Seventy years in the building, the most expensive outlay of money that the Roman Empire has in the Middle of East in all of time is the temple in Jerusalem. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't say that they would serve the temple have no right to eat. He refers to the tabernacle. Because you and I are traveling, folks. This world is not our home. That's why these verses say that we do not seek a, an earthly city, an abiding place here, but we look for one that is yet to come, that is temporary, that is not temporary, but is permanent and cannot be moved. But he says we have an altar. And so God says to Moses, he said, I want you to build. And he describes the tabernacle. And you remember it's a, it's a linen curtain and it encompasses a, a, a portion of ground. And within that linen curtain, there is a building that is uh, movable. It's kind of interesting in its own architecture. And it's covered with skins and it's covered with cloth. And then there's this courtyard, if you will. Now you remember there's only one door to get into the tabernacle. And nobody enters the tabernacle except the priests. And so at this door, a lot of things happen at this door. Now, when God talks to Moses, he said, I want you to build this tabernacle, and I want you to make sure you do it exactly as I say. Now, why would God say that? Why didn't Moses have any leeway? Well, we just thought that, you know, we looked at all the proportions, thought the altar ought to be a little bigger, so we just built a little bigger. God said, I want you to do this because it is a reflection of the reality of heaven. That's why. And so even as as there was an altar here on earth, there is truly an altar in heaven. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, we have an altar, it is not that earthly altar. It is not the altar of the tabernacle. It is the altar in heaven itself. But I digress. Let me pick up where we were talking. So you get to the altar, so you get to the tabernacle. Now you're going to bring your sin offering, depending on whether you're just the average guy, depending on whether you're a priest, depending on whether you're the king, you're going to bring a different type of animal for a sacrifice. It will always be a female. It will always be either a goat, could be a sheep, could be a bullock, depending on who you are. But you will bring your sacrifice to the gate of the tabernacle. Now think of this, folks. It's because you have sinned that you have brought this animal. This animal is going to represent you now in sacrifice because you need to come back to God. We need to come back to God. 
And until God would send his lamb, the only way it could happen was through these temporary sacrifices. The writer of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats could never wash away sin. That would be the Lamb of God who would come, but here you have your animal. Now think of this. Think of what this would be in our society. So you walk up to the gate of the tabernacle, and a priest comes out, looks at you, and says, what can I do for you? I've sinned. I I, I want atonement made for my sin. I can't live with myself or my neighbors anymore. I need God in my life. Okay. Well, would you place your hands on the animal? This is what you brought for your sacrifice. The priest looks at it. Perfectly good. No blemishes. Stout. Now you place your hand on the head of that animal. And the priest takes his knife and reaches under and he slits that animal's throat and the animal drops from underneath your hand. It dies in your place. It takes your sin. Only temporarily. But it's looking forward to the one who would. Now, you know what happens for that sin offering? The priest is then going to butcher it. And he's going to take all the fat from the inside of the animal. And he's going to take all the blood. And all the blood, he's going to dip in his fingers. And depending on which sin sacrifice it is, he will take in his fingertips out of the blood and he will sprinkle it towards the tabernacle building, the sanctuary, the curtain. He'll just sprinkle it seven times. And then what he'll do is he'll take the rest of it and on the four horns of the altar, he'll dab it and then he'll literally, and you can imagine how much blood a bull has. A goat's got a little less, but it's still a lot. And he's just going to literally splash the rest of that blood around the altar. Now the interesting thing is that the rest of that animal, guess what happens to it? The priests and their families, that's their food. That's their food. And out in the place where they dump the ashes, outside the camp, that's where they butcher that animal, and then that animal is eaten in a holy place, sometimes literally around the the tabernacle itself. Why do I say all that? Because the writer of Hebrews says that we, as believers, have an altar. And an altar is where sacrifice is made. And an altar is where there is something about that sacrifice that brings us back to God. We understand who that sacrifice was. We understand that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We understand that salvation was instituted before the world began. But it was consummated on that hill outside of Jerusalem, outside the gate, where there was disgrace. That's where it was consummated. So that you and I, so that we... Not priests, nobody special, not part of a special family group that we could be brought back to God. So he says that these priests who are now serving in the tabernacle have no right to eat from our altar. Have no right to have sustenance from somebody else, somebody else's sacrifice. Isn't it interesting that that altar speaks of the heavenly altar? Isn't it interesting that that altar on earth talks about sacrifice? And out of that sacrifice, somebody lives, gets their livelihood. And isn't it interesting that that heavenly altar that we have provides for us all that we need? The scripture says that in Christ, 
that we are given through the promises, all that we need for both life and godliness. And so when the writer goes on and he says, we have an altar, and those who serve the earthly tabernacle have no right to eat of it. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people. Well, who's the people? It's believers. It's a whole new people. You remember the verse in 1 Peter 2, 9, and he talks about, and he's actually quoting the Old Testament verse about the people of Israel. And he says that you and I, as believers, that we are a unique, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. That there's something, that we're a peculiar people. That we should show forth the praises of him who who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so Jesus suffers without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people, set them apart, make them special, with his own blood suffered without the gate. And we think about that today. We think about that they take him from an unjust trial. To the Romans, it is seven, it is six days before that that Jesus prophesies to his disciples, has all along, but he makes it very clear. I will be, I will be betrayed and given unto the Gentiles, and they will beat me and mock me and scourge me and spit on me, and they will kill me, and on the third day I'll rise again. That was his prophecy, and we see that happen We see that happen later in that week. We see him turned over to the Gentiles. The Jews are subservient to Rome. The Jews will deny Christ. The Jews as a nation will say, let his blood be upon us. Oh, that that were true. Oh, that they could have understood what they were saying. To be part of his blood. Not responsible. Well, there it is. And so we, we recognize that today. Let us go forth, therefore, to him without the camp, bearing his reproach. It is, in some times, in some places, folks, it may be popular to be a Christian. It's sometime in this world, and in some places, it might even be acceptable But I will tell you in that decision that you make to follow Jesus that you'll be turning your back on a whole lot of other things. When you decide to follow Jesus, you'll be making a decision to walk away from this world and the rulers of this world and the things that move and motivate because you will go to him who says, I will supply your need. So let us go to him without the camp. Just to think about that camp for a minute. Here we are in the middle of Altoona. Think of the children of Israel. Here's the tabernacle. And every one of those tribes, as a tribe, is gathered around the the tabernacle. There is a way right to the front, to that single door. At the time that they come out of Egypt, there are estimates that that the people of Israel number as much as three million people. Well, three million people. Let's, let's put them all, let's put them all in Altoona. It might be a little tough, but follow along. And let's pick the geographical center of Altoona. And now let's say that when the sacrifices are given, 
You're going to take, every day you're going to take the ashes from the altar and you're going to wheelbarrow them out outside the camp. So how far are you taking those ashes? Just geographically. I'm just thinking of how much effort that takes. You see, outside the camp is a distance. Camp isn't like, well, we've got a few huts here. It's a big place. And to go outside the camp, what would that mean? That would be away from my friends, away from my family, away from what I'm used to, away from the things that I have as my support. But isn't that what Jesus is calling us to? Isn't that where we find him is outside the camp? That's what the writer of Hebrews says. And so we have entered into that. And then he says this, and this is the conclusion. He says, because right now, here, we have no continuing abiding place. This world is not our home. We truly are just passing through. And so while we're passing through, what is it that you and I are called upon to do? Let me wrap up the end from the beginning. An altar, folks, is made for one thing, and that is to offer sacrifice. An altar isn't, it's not like, you know, we think of the altar in the front of the church, and isn't that what it's there for? If somebody comes and kneels, whether they're asking God to come into their life, and they've never before experienced forgiveness and salvation, or whether they're looking for healing, isn't it all about sacrifice? What do we have here? We have no continuing city We're just passing through. We're looking for the real one that is yet to come. So as we're passing through, we have a sacrifice. And what God has called on you and me to do in sacrifice is something that is so foreign to this world. Verse 15 says, By him... By Jesus, therefore, let us offer up the sacrifice. Sacrifice costs something, folks. It's not free in any way. Let us offer through him the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips. It is the natural outgrowth of somebody who has found salvation is thanksgiving, is praise. And that's a sacrifice. Because the world I live in isn't much on praise. Oh, it is for certain individuals and ramping up certain types of people and and making something out of something that's really nothing at all. But to praise God because of what he's done in our life. To praise him for the opportunity to be alive at this time. To praise him for the things that have come into our life that have been protected by his hand and given us grace to withstand. To praise. That's what he's called on us to do. And he refers to it as a sacrifice because we put it on the altar in heaven. Well, listen to that whole verse. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The end of chapter 12 in Hebrews says this. Our God is a consuming fire. 
He is God. I choose to say, I don't believe in God. And I don't want anything to constrain me or anyone else. And I can say that all I want. But that doesn't change him. Because I declare that he doesn't exist doesn't change him. He is still there. Stephen Hawking had a face-to-face last week with the creator of the universe. Not a big bang. Our God is a consuming fire. Here's the truth, folks. He's the fire on the altar. And he will either burn us up or he will burn us out. But he will consume us either way. Look around you at the people who are, quote, burned out. Nothing left, just shells. Oh, yeah, it happens. You want to know the number one vocation of burnout in America? It's the pastor. How can you burn out serving the living God who's the consuming fire? Well, that happens. See, he's the consuming fire. He's the flame on the altar. There's a sacrifice to be made. It's been made for us. And the sacrifice we make is just giving praise to his name. Continually, the fruit of our lips. The wonderful thing is we have an altar. An altar there is there for one reason. To bring back together something that had been separated. The altar is there to bring us back to God. And it was only temporary with the blood of bulls and goats. But the sacrifice that Jesus made that day on Calvary, suffering without the camp, suffering as a common thief, he's there for us. He is there for us. There is the we and the they. And the wonderful thing is that if you're a we, you used to be a they. And that all those around you who may be still the they's, you can join with the one who saved you and say, forgive them. You can go out and offer the forgiveness that you've received. Thank you. Ashley is going to minister to us now. Um, So this is When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's a very well-known hymn, and it goes along with Pastor Roland saying that Jesus made the sacrifice for us. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the
sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did have such love and sorrow meet? Oh, thorns compose so rich a Abigail. That was beautiful, and boy. We could stop right there, couldn't we? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to offer up Via Dolorosa. Um, it literally means in Spanish, the way of suffering. Down the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem that day, the soldiers tried to clear the narrow street, but the crowd pressed in to see a man condemned to die on Calvary. He was bleeding from a beating, there were stripes upon his back, and he wore a crown of thorns upon his head. And he bore with every step the scorn of those who cried out for his death. Down the Via Dolorosa, called the way of suffering, like a lamb came the Messiah, Christ the King. But he chose to walk that road out of his love 
stripes upon his back and he wore a crown of thorns upon his head and he bore with every staff the scorn of those who cried out for his death por la vida dolorosa quis la vida del dolor como vieja vino Cristo Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And this evening as we have contemplated the sacrifice that was made, we come to the table together to, to share in the bread, to share in the cup, and to once again proclaim the Lord's death. Read from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. It's after Jesus had fed the 5,000, after he had walked on the water. It says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered 
and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. And then they said to him, What shall we do, that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. And therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And this evening again we celebrate together the bread and the cup. And as we do, and the, 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 the music will, will play and we're just going to take a time of pause. A time to reflect, Paul instructs the Corinthians to examine ourselves as we come to the table. And as the music plays, we'll spend just a time in prayer. I'll lead us in prayer and then the elements will be passed and we will share in communion this evening. blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said take eat this is my body the elements will be passed now
And we remember the body that was broken for us. Lord, there are no words that can express the gratitude. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may eat of the bread. In Matthew 26, Jesus talks and he shares what we call the Last Supper. He said he institutes a new covenant, covenant of blood to be shed for you. And I often think about this and I think this is only hours before he went through the trials and the beatings and before his death. And he knew what was coming. Yet he willfully walked in those ways. Some of us have a hard time moving in that direction when we know that trouble is coming. Yet, as he prayed and it was his father's will, he took the step. And he did what he needed to do and he did what he came to do and he finished the work upon the cross. And that should have an effect on us. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as he talked about how Christ appeared after the resurrection to the disciples and to others. He said, then he appeared to me, one abnormal, born abnormal. He said, but I am what I am because God's grace was not without effect upon me. And I pray that for you. That God's grace just doesn't go without effect. This, this night doesn't pass and we just, oh yeah, that was a nice service and we go on. But life and our hearts change because we contemplate that Christ gave his life for us. We heard about the sacrifice. We heard about the body that was given, the blood that was shed so that we all might have the remission of sins or the forgiveness of sins. Life, the life is in the lifeblood. We have life because Christ gave his. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you that your son was obedient even to the cross. That he shed his blood so that we might live. And Father, I pray that grace is not without effect in our own lives. That we would continue to have it at work so we might rejoice but we also might reflect Father we thank you for the shed blood because without it there is no forgiveness there is no life let us all drink in remembrance of that the Bible tells us that they went out and sang a hymn Terry
is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, it's humbling to think that there was a day when every one of us discovered something you showed us. Your grace did such a glorious work of putting all those circumstances together, the details of that moment and truth touched our hearts. We praise you, God, that that truth was more than simply an idea or thought, but it's the power of your transforming grace. Some of us had dropped us to our knees. Some of us, we stood with our hands held high. Some of us stood from a distance. Some of us ran close. But your grace has accomplished its work. We pray that that grace will now motivate us and continue to impress upon us not only to live a kind of unique quality of life, but to allow our broken hearts to be put back together again. And may we shout. By the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we live, and where we go, may our joy be, it's all about him. We thank you for that. And may we, who've come to face, we as a church, we as your people, may your message of life not prove to be foolishness, but let that power move us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Thank you very much. And uh, we're only beginning. It's dessert time now. So we can try to migrate back into that room and uh, maybe you get a chance to mingle a little bit and say hi to somebody. God bless.